Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast. We're in our three-part series on women's voices. And if you listened to the podcast last week, you heard me present this idea. It's not my idea. Research backs it up that girls before the age of eight tend to really own their voices. They actually have great agency in their body. But as they are socialized, they learn, like all of us women know, they learn to be more quiet. They actually end up speaking less in certain arenas. And they come to discover that not only do they speak less, that actually they are less listened to when they find themselves amongst male counterparts. That's nothing new. We all know that to be true. What we may not ever think about often, and it's not talked about that often, is that actually women can self-silence. Yeah, they silence themselves. Um, And I have actually seen that happen. Over the decades that I have pastored women, I have sat with many, many women, and they share their stories. And over and over again, I have seen women self-silence. Let me just give you an example of what I mean by that. I had this one woman come to me. She shared with me. She'd been married for 30-some years, and she shared with me that she found she was very angry at her husband. And I asked, well, what are you angry about? She said, I'm angry that over the past 30 years, I was a stay-at-home mom. I took care of our large family. I did all the cooking. I did all the cleaning. He worked outside the home. So, you know, that's her labor. That's his labor. But on the weekends, he went golfing. And she is really angry that he didn't, over those 30 years, ever consider that maybe she needed a break on the weekends from the kids and from the house. Now, I get it. I probably would be angry too. And I really would want my husband to like catch on. So I I had to ask her, okay, but let me ask you this. Did you tell him? Did you tell him that that wasn't working for you? And she was like, well, no. I mean, that's not what godly women do. And I was like, where did you get that? And she starts quoting me like first Peter to how, you know, and submission and all of this stuff. And I'm So let me get this straight. You're mad at your husband for something he's done for 30 years that you let him think you were okay with for 30 years, and now you're going to go batshit crazy on him? Like, that just doesn't seem right. The point is, she self-silenced, and it actually cost her something. Internally, it was costing her something 
for 30 years. And she did it under this demise of being a godly woman. And you know what? I think it cost their marriage something. Now, they've stayed married, but let me tell you, it's been coming out sideways in passive ways all throughout their marriage. And he has no idea. So, yeah, we know statistically that as girls become grown women, they speak less particularly in arenas where men are deemed more capable, you know, when talking about the military or politics or governing a church. We know that women talk less. We know that men interrupt women more. We know that women um, aren't heard as well. They aren't listened to as well as men. But did you know women also self-silence themselves? It's a fascinating idea. So when a friend of mine, Jamie, hey, Jamie, if you're out there, I'm talking about you. When Jamie texted me and said, hey, I've got this friend of mine you have got to meet. She's a professor at South Southwestern University, just north here of Austin. And her research is on why women self-silence. And so I could not wait to meet up with this woman. I Hooked up a coffee date with her, pre-pandemic, by the way. But we sat around for a couple hours. I shared with her what I had observed in the faith community, and she shared with me her research. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if I wasn't the only person that heard this, that like maybe you too would like to hear about women who self-silence. So welcome, Erin, to my podcast. Um, you're a professor at Southwestern University, which brags to be the oldest university in Texas, which I had no idea. Others are now going to go Google to see if that's true. So you'll probably have to tell us first and foremost why there's bragging rights there, and then tell us what you teach at this university. Absolutely. Uh, so Southwestern is a university comprised of four different colleges. One of those colleges uh, was the first to be established in Texas. Now, in between that college being established and the four of them joining to make Southwestern, Baylor University was established. So we go back and forth on who uh, owns the bragging rights for being the oldest university in Texas. Depends on if you're measuring it from the time all of those universities formed or when the first one was created. But we, we, we like to have some friendly banter there. Yes, I have uh, heard there's friendly banter. So go ahead and tell us what you teach there at the oldest university in Texas. Absolutely. I teach a few courses that are focused on research and research skills. So a research methods course and a capstone course where my students do independent research. I also teach a course called health psychology where we're focused on the physical health benefits of different psychological processes. So things like behavior change. I teach a course uh, that's an intro course that covers the gamut of psychological concepts. And then my course that really is closest to my area of interest is a course I teach called Close Relationships, where we talk about all sorts of relationships, like friendships, adult romantic relationships, parent-child relationships. And that's really my area of specialty. Wonderful. So that is what I heard, right? Like that you had done some research on uh, why, uh, on women self-silencing and why they do so. And a friend of mine connected us and, and I met up with you pre-pandemic. I want to make sure everybody understands. And uh, we spent a couple hours together talking about some of my observations. Because The reason I wanted to talk to you is because I have seen this in the Christian faith. I have seen it lived out and I shared that with you. And I shared a story just a bit, a bit back with the, the audience so they understand where I'm coming from. And then 
you kind of shared with me about your research. So help our listeners understand what you were researching and what you discovered. Absolutely. Um, so like I mentioned, I study adult romantic relationships. And one of the things that I have long been interested about in those relationships is the way that some of these processes are impacting our physical health. And when we look at physical health, one of the things we see that impacts women more than men is that women are more likely to self-silence. This is true overall. Uh, and it's associated with a host of physical health consequences. It makes us four times more likely to die uh, of a heart attack than men. So it, there are real sizable consequences associated with this behavior. And so I was looking at self-silencing in the context of a newlywed sample. These were all couples who had been married. It was their first six months of marriage, and we followed them over the course of the first three years that they were married to each other. And every six months, we would ask them, how are things going in your relationship? How are you doing? And then once a year, they would fill out these more intensive diaries for us, where every day for 14 days, they were telling us what happened in their relationship. Was there conflict? Were they supporting each other? And one of the items we put in there that we asked was, did you suppress your opinions or your emotions to avoid conflict? And that's what this research really was based off of. We were interested in when people were doing that, what was happening? What was happening in their relationships? What was happening in them? Uh, what did that look like the next day? And then what did that look like six months or a year later? And we found that those were really different answers. So often people, one of the reasons we suppress our emotions is to avoid conflict. We don't love conflict. Uh, <laughs> it stresses us out. Uh, and really that's one of the motivating factors for why we don't have conflict. Uh, and we found that there, there's some reason that we don't enjoy it. The day that we have conflict, it doesn't feel good. Uh, it's not fun. It's uh, stressful. We are less satisfied with our relationships on those days. But we recover from that. And we even see this rebound effect such that in subsequent days, we're even happier than we were before the conflict. That initial period that doesn't feel so great, uh, we think might actually reinforce the fact that people are self-silencing. Mm -hmm. Particularly unfortunate is when we were looking out long-term, six months, a year later, that same item, like did you self-silence, which the day of felt kind of stinky, long-term was associated with really pretty remarkable consequences for the relationship. As we see couples growing apart, declines in intimacy, increases in conflict. And we were struck by that difference, that initially it can reinforce itself, but long-term it could really have some more serious consequences. So um, basically what you're telling us is exactly what Scripture says, is that conflict is actually helpful. Combat isn't, but conflict is actually, can actually be helpful if we do it well. It can also be really destructive. And what it sounds like is that women, you, you specifically focused a lot on women. Is that, I know you were focused on both, but you saw something unique with women. Is that true? Um, so in general, women are more likely to self-silence. This effect we found for both, but in, in the literature more largely, what we see um, is the there are reasons unique to women for why they self-silence. And one of the reasons that tends to uniquely impact them is a lack of perceived regard. So that component of it, this, the, so one of the reasons that I just talked about this 
initial, we don't like conflict. That's probably true for both men and women. Yes, yes. Both men and women are more likely to say, I'd rather avoid this fight. Uh, but some of the other reasons that people self-silence are indeed unique to women. And can you extrapolate on that a little bit? Because I want our audience to understand that a little better. Why, why, what is unique to why women self-silence? Absolutely. So I, in our research, I hit a little bit on this idea that it doesn't feel good. We don't like conflict. And so we self-silence. As I got more into this literature and was thinking more uh, about it, I came across work by some of my colleagues where we see that that, that that is true. That is one of the reasons we self-silence, but there's a larger underlying reason why we may choose that. And that is because we don't perceive that our voices matter. So there's lower perceived positive regard. And if we don't think the person we are communicating with values our voice, if we don't think our voice matters to them, we're much more likely to silence that voice. And that is much more likely to be the case with women than it is men. Right. So if a woman shares with her husband, let's say, I need this and I need this, and she shares that need multiple times and continues to be shut down and not heard, at some point she might get to a point where she just self-silences. Is that what we're saying? Absolutely. So, yeah, kind of important because there's women listening right now going, I've done that, right? One of the stories I just told was how a woman did that for 30 years. She actually didn't even tell her husband what she needed because she was afraid that that wasn't uh, submissive, that that wasn't being supportive, right? And so she self-silenced right from the beginning. She didn't even tell him what she needed. Um, And then she's mad at him. (laughs) She didn't tell him. And then she's mad, like he's supposed to read her mind, you know? Um, But we do have, I I know there are lots of stories of women, and this is true of men too, but of women in particular, particularly um, in the faith community, it's reinforced reinforced, which we'll talk about in a minute, but this idea of trying to be heard and not being heard. So after a while, you just stop talking. You stop putting it out there. It's too vulnerable to be rejected and not heard over and over and over again. So and Jackie, go ahead. I was just going to say, even in that situation, you're just describing where it's never brought up at all. There, that lack of positive regard can still play a role. So there could be other things that are happening that make you feel like your voice wouldn't matter, even if it wasn't you bringing that up before. Uh, there could be other dynamics at play that would make you feel like, well, if I did bring it up, people are my voice wouldn't be heard. And that would be enough to keep you from bringing it up. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, uh, you shared with me your study, and I was like, so intrigued. I'm like, I don't know anybody that spends their time like researching relationships. And boy, you must be doing a lot of research right now in the pandemic with all these marriages. Um, but why, why did you go after this particular research? Was it just an academic pursuit? Or was there something personal driving it? Yeah. When this item first worked its way into the research, it was part of my dissertation, uh, because I was interested just in the fact that we see gender differences in behavior, and I wanted to see how it played out. But honestly, I didn't look at the question until years later, seven or eight years later, uh, when the issue did become very personal for me. So we had very close um, friends who went through what was for me a very traumatic divorce. Uh, It was a couple who had mentored us poured into our lives that we were walking in really close community with. And to be honest, I had no idea that the wife was upset in this relationship. And so when it very quickly uh, escalated, from my perspective, very quickly escalated to the point 
that uh, she was ready to leave the relationship, I was surprised and I was shocked and I didn't really understand. Uh, And what I didn't know was that these concerns, these frustrations had been there for years, uh, for decades. And over time, as these concerns were self-silenced and they weren't being shared, it was just creating this wedge. And so initially, when I uh, embarked upon this project, I just was really interested in what does this do when we're self-silencing these concerns and these feelings and these emotions that we have? What is it doing to our relationship outcomes? Is this a unique situation? And it turns out not at all. Not at all. Very much to be expected, right? That when we are silencing these things, it's creating this growing gap that makes us feel so distant from our partners uh, that it, it doesn't feel like a marriage anymore. Yeah. And before you know, and it's exact, I I have experienced what you're describing because I I have a lot of women who are going through their midlife and what they do Mm -hmm. in midlife is they reevaluate, right? We call it midlife crisis, but it's really an evaluation. Some people go into crisis mode, but lots of people, almost everybody has a midlife evaluation, right? Mm -hmm. And and what I see is that women in the evangelical community are, uh, we see couples at this stage in the evangelical community, because that's where I live and swim, um, start divorcing and, and you start listening to why. And it's like this, there was a lack of being heard in the marriage. And by the way, this isn't always just one way. It's not the woman being heard for all those, you, all of you listening, of course it goes both ways, but we are saying that research is showing that women tend to self-silence more and it's problematic because at the end, what we have is a ruptured relationship. That's, that's what's at stake here when women self-silence or if men self-silence. Just exactly what you said. There's a rupture in relationship, right? And we don't want that, and actually God doesn't want that. So um, I want to say, you, you know, I've done a little bit of research on women's voices, and um, most of that research has been done in the secular world. But it does reinforce exactly what you're saying, that women self-silence, not just in marriages, but also in the workplace, in, in our government policy, pol- politics, et cetera, et cetera. And so for those of you listening out there, if you want to read a really thick, laborious book that's great on this subject, and I do mean it's laborious because it's like research, 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 and all the studies showing how it impacts women, um, this self-silencing impacts women, the book is called The Silent Sex, Gender, Deliberation, and Institutions. And I'll put it on our Facebook group page so that you can have it. You don't have to write it down. But Again, I want to stress, neither their research that I've been reading, because a lot of the research that out there, and even yours, is not centered around women of faith communities necessarily. It's really just normal people out there. Do you think that if you did a research project where the demographic was male, female, Christian, evangelicals, or just male, female Christians in America, that you would find the same conclusion that you did in this, this research project? I absolutely do. And, and I'm fearful it actually might be more pronounced. Uh, I feel like there's a lot that we do uh, in the church and the ways that we interpret passages and the ways that we talk about scripture that would make it where it would be um, especially easy for women to choose to self-silence. And um, sometimes I think in churches, we give women the message implicitly that their voices um, are not as important or don't matter as much or don't carry the same weight as men's voices. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's more outright and explicit 
uh, I know that's been um, a part of my story. And so I could only imagine that when you're living in these spaces where that message is not only reinforced, but it's also in some ways validated um, by something that is so important to the women living in these communities that this effect would actually become stronger. Yeah, that's my... uh... That's exactly what I think we'd probably find also. So share a little bit of how, because I've experienced that. Um, it's interesting, as a child, when I look back, and I was raised in an abusive, verbally abusive home, but an abusive home, I actually had voice. Like, my family actually created space for us kids to have a voice. And it wasn't until I actually became a part of the Christian community that my voice was limited or restricted, which I find so fascinating. <laughs> like that's an oxymoron right there. Um, that I would be growing up in a secular home that is abusive, that gives me a voice. And I come into the church where Christ brings freedom and I am limited. Um, and so it's fascinating, right? It's really, I've experienced that coming into the Christian church and how we teach about, um, and you're right, most of it is implicit. But I think about a friend of mine, well, actually, if you look at church history, our church fathers actually taught throughout church history that women's minds were, were fickle, they're, they're weaker, they're more, we're more easily deceived, we're vulnerable to false teaching, teaching, and this is just part of our DNA, it's part of our nature. And so, of course, when you read 1 Timothy 2 and you see some of those words, you would interpret them through our church father's lens, that this is not about women not having any education and therefore more easily deceived, but it's just women's DNA. And that sounds so absurd today, but I literally sat um, on a dock at a lake house with a bunch of women, mature women of faith, and it was sharing that I was delving into some issues, theological issues, and was chasing them down and whatever. And one of the women, a really godly woman, looked at me and she said, you need to be careful. Because, you know, you're a woman and you're, you could be easily deceived here. And I was yeah. like, and she quoted First Timothy 2. And I'm like, that, that's not what that passage means. But it was a woman silencing me in the yeah. church. So share a little bit about how that's played out for you. Because it is implicit. It's subtle most of the time. And I think women in the faith community aren't always picking up on it um, really well, even though they're internalizing it. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, this was all, uh, I, I mean, I shared even from the start, there was a personal component to this research, but I really was looking at these things, interested in the impact it had on romantic relationships. And it wasn't until one or two years into the research that I was just really convicted that so much of this overlaid on my own experience in the church. And that I had had moments in my past where I was made to feel like my voice didn't matter in the church as much as men's voice mattered. Uh, some of that was people saying it, um, not realizing the impact that it had. Some of that was from decisions that were made uh, and church leadership changes. So the church leadership becoming an all-male leadership board from before I was a part of that leadership. And then uh, when we made this change to be an all-male leader, was no longer a part of it. And so in that sense, my voice really didn't matter as much like it wasn't a part of that table. And what I saw happen over the course of years and years is I just stopped talking as much. 
I still had concerns, but when I had them and I brought them up, they caused problems. They caused tension. Uh, I don't like feeling like I'm in trouble. And more than once, I was made to feel like I was in trouble because of some of these views. And slowly but surely, I just stopped sharing them. And I made that decision to self-silence. And part of it was just like what our study found, right? Like it felt worse in the moment. And so there's a part of which I need to own that I made that choice. But there was also this sense in which I didn't feel like my voice mattered as much. And there wasn't this perceived positive regard for my voice uh, that made it feel less safe to share my voice in those spaces. And wouldn't you know, uh, over time, the longer I did that, the further I felt from the church, the more problems were festering between me and the church. So exactly what I saw in that sample of newlyweds, I, I was realizing was also happening in my own uh, experience with church. Yeah. Yep. You just shared a whole lot of people's story right there. Um, it's and, and again, I don't think we're aware of the subtleness of this, right? Because it's like slowly being cooked. It's like a lobster slowly being cooked. Slow but surely we silence. We silence. It's not worth the fight, right? Like in end, you are told sometimes in church when you keep raising issues up, like, hey, you're being a troublemaker. Well, we don't want to be a troublemaker. We want, we want unity. And we're told that we're supposed to create unity and all of those things. So we start to self-silence. And I think about the price to be had when a particular group of people, um, and right now we're talking about women, but it could also be other minority groups are silenced. Like what's lacking at the table, what decisions are being made, what programs are being put in place, how are resources being allocated that are lacking because we don't have their perspective, their inner life coming to the outer life and saying, hey, have you considered this? We know decisions are made, you know, better decisions are made when they're made collaboratively, right? When we have more than one mind on it, more than one perspective on it. And yet we have faith communities where it's pretty sterile. You know, we're, we're, we, we do not have a lot of diverse voices at the table, including women. And I was thinking about my own church experience. And um, well, let me go back to this, the book on the silent sex. One of the things it talks about is that women are socialized to literally speak less and even when they speak less, they're heard less. Like even when they speak up, they are not listened to as much as men, their counterpart, male counterparts. And, the, and women are socialized, it said, to speak up about what? About the needs of, and this is like, again, it's not DNA, but it's how we're socialized. Women tend to speak up for the needs of those who are vulnerable, disadvantaged, poor, exploited, stigmatized children, family matters, right? And so all of those issues um, are not being heard as loud because women aren't present. And I was thinking about when I was on staff at a church and um, when we, I, I was the teaching pastor to women in this mega church and we had like a thousand women coming to our Bible study and my boss, Julie, and I kind of decided, hey, part of our ministry is we're going to start working to um, overcome domestic violence in our, area, in our area, Dallas Metroplex, and to work with pulling women out of sex trafficking. Like we feel like if we're going to be women of faith, we got to go after these issues. And so we were talking about that and actually making inroads in that in our little corner, if you will, of that church. Well, so but surely Julie and I got invited to the leadership table, the male leadership table, and we started sharing those stories. 
of women who coming out of sex trafficking and what was happening and what was happening in domestic violence. And to be honest with you, these were stories my brothers were not aware of. They weren't aware of half of what's going on in women's lives, you know, slow but surely, and it was a shift. But programs and policies and resource allocations started to shift. It became no longer a women's issue happening in the women's department. It became the church's mandate to, to go after these um, sinful structures that were set up in our society. It was men and women serving together in this fight. And I think that's what happens. Like I've had a positive example of what happens when women's voices are not only asked to be at the table, but then heard at the table. So I want to ask my listeners out there, um, particularly for some of you men, and I know there's men listening because you email me and tell me, um, how can you create spaces in your home, if you're married in your marriages, um, your workplace, for your children? How can you create spaces for women to be present? And then knowing that statistically her presence isn't only what's going to make her heard, how can you help be sure that she is heard while she's at the table. And then I also want to say to the women listeners out there, we too have areas of influence and where we have the ability to provide spaces and places for people who don't have a voice to actually speak and be heard. And how are we doing with that? And when I thought about this, and I'm going to ask Erin this question in just a second, but I started thinking about, well, okay, so I've seen it happen in my work life. I mean, actually, the Marcella Project, that's one of the things we do is help women find their voice, use their voice, create space for their voice to be heard at the table. I'm doing that in, in my faith community work life. But I had to ask myself, how have I done it in my marriage? And, 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 and am I there in my marriage? And, and did I provide that for my children? And so there were some things I wanted to share that I think might be helpful for those of you listening. And when I got married, my husband's a very, he's an eight on the anagram, and I'm an eight on the anagram. So this is really interesting. Um, he's kind of a bull in a china closet, but he has given me a voice. Like, he, want, he wants to hear what I have to say. But sometimes he runs so hard and so fast, and he's dominant that, like, you have to almost, like, get him on, you know, relaxing tea to get him down <laughs> to, to listen. But I realized early on in my marriage that men tend to, whenever you get into a conflict, I think men tend to do three D things. They defend, debate, and deny. That's their go-to. Now, I, I know I'm hyper, you know, being hyperpolar, however you say the word. I know I'm talking, you know, superlative here, but in general, deny, debate, defend. And so I would have to set Steve up and say, look, your tendency of what I'm going to say right now is to want to defend yourself or debate me or, and here's what I want to say. I think you're the most amazing human being in the universe. And I want you to know that our relationship is really secure. There's nothing on the line here by my asking you this question or sharing my voice right now. I want you to know, I love you. I think you're amazing. And now I need to talk about this. And when I do that, sometimes he hears me and sometimes he doesn't. He kicks into the deny, debate, and defend. And then I have to say to him, he'll say to me, well, what about? And I'll say, um, are you safe? Like, are you safe, Steve? Are you creating a safe space for me to be heard? Because I'm not going to have this conversation with you until I know I'm safe. And whenever I say those kinds of things to Steve, it brings him down and it creates a space where he can hear. I don't know what that's like for you, Erin. It would be interesting to see how that's worked in your marriage. And I'm hoping that people who are listening will throw a bunch of suggestions on our Facebook page because we could all learn. 
how to do this from each other. Like how, what tools have you learned to manage your relationship to be heard? You know, how Mm -hmm. have you helped your partner hear you? Um, How are you speaking so that you can be heard, right? And then I had to think about my kids. Um, You know, they got raised in the church underneath two pastors and both their parents were pastors and I was also a pastor's wife. And so a lot of times I think in Christian communities, it's hard for us parents to allow our kids to have a voice, particularly if that voice is saying something like, I don't agree with your faith stance. And um, later in my children's adult life, my daughter during college came to me and told me that she felt like being raised in the evangelical church, that she was brainwashed. And I had to sit there and hear my daughter say this to me. It was extremely painful. I had given my energy and life to raising my kids in Christ and talk about feeling like a failure, <laughs> like, whoa. Um, but I, I, I just listened and I tried to receive it without being defensive, without correcting her, without rewriting her history, without saying why that isn't true or excusing myself. I just listened. And then I had to go back and revisit that conversation with her. And, and actually, sometimes, I mean, it's been a couple of years, we're still revisiting some parts of that conversation. And I'm trying as a mom, and it's so hard because, man, you really hate the idea that you might have messed up your kid, you know? It's so hard to just sit there and say, I'm going to receive what you have to say, go back and think upon it, and then can we come back and have another conversation? Um, So I I think I've given, the fact that my daughter could even say that to me, I think it tells me I, I probably have, we probably have created a safe space for our kids to think differently than us. Um, but we need to actually work at creating those spaces, right? Where your child can tell you they don't believe the same thing you believe. Is that okay? So what about you, Erin? Like you're, you're, you're a marital expert right now on this conflict and how to go through it. <laughs> just because you study it, I'm sure you're also an expert in doing no, it. Um, no, no. We just label our fights differently. <laughs> We have terminology to describe everything that we're doing incorrectly as we are arguing. Um, <laughs> we're still doing them incorrectly. Um, well, what would you say to our listeners about how do you find your voice? How do you use it in your marriage? How do you how do you create space in a marriage so the voices can be heard? How do we do it with our kids? How do we do it in the workplace? Well, let me just say first, Jackie, both of those were, examples were such great ones where the, the way you're approaching those conversations, the humility, the openness, the willingness to listen, uh, to share respectfully, there's just so much in both of those examples that are really inspiring to me. Like, I, I just, I love the way that you laid those out. Um, that's great. They're great. But specific to marriage, I, I guess, well, let me start with the good news. Uh, so having voice, in fact, we call it voice. Uh, it's our terminology for bringing these things up uh, is by far associated with the best outcomes, even if you don't do it perfectly. Mm. So you should fight fair. And there's a lot of things we know about fighting fair. And I can talk about a few of those, but I think we can also take some of the stress off of our shoulders that even if we don't do it perfectly, voice creates change in ways that other ways of managing conflict doesn't. So when we exit the conversation, when we are more passive, even if we're passive and positive, voice is where we see the biggest change in behavior. So 
we should fight fair. Um, but know that if you mess up, giving voice to those things still has an impact. One of the big things we talk about as far as fighting fair is one, you talk about issues, not about character. So you avoid character assassination. Everything that you just said, Jackie, when you were, I love you, we're solid, I think you're amazing. Uh, you don't lose sight that this is somebody who you love and you respect and uh, you care about. And so you're, you're bringing up issues in a way that makes it harder to be defensive or less likely that somebody is going to be defensive because you're not attacking them. You're just bringing up. A, and we even change the name of what we call it sometimes instead of calling it conflict because conflict is such a negatively laden term, right? We call it a source of stress or tension we want to work through. Uh, and we reframe it because then it's not as threatening. It's, it's a challenge. We can figure this out together and it brings you on the same page. Um, one of, so one of the things is not being critical. Another thing that the literature would suggest is to avoid a cycle called demand withdraw, which I don't like either of those labels, but the idea is somebody brings up a concern and the other person leaves it. Not in the way that you just suggested, Jackie, with your daughter, where you have a conversation and you come back to it when you're in a better place to talk about it, but you just never address it. And that is one of the other things we can do that would be really damaging because after somebody's made themselves vulnerable and they yep. voice to then not talk about it is to devalue that voice. Even if you're not arguing, right? Like you're just saying, okay, and you're walking away and not having the conversation. Yeah. And so we recognize those things, my husband and I, in our conflict all the time. And we identify them and then we give ourselves time to calm down about the fact that we just helped each other identify them before we're ready to talk about it. Because <laughs> sometimes having the terminology to point it out can make you defensive. Um, but, but I I think those are the two big things that I try to keep in my mind is not to be critical and then the demand was right. I think those are the two things the literature most consistently suggests leads to healthy conflict. Yeah, um, and let me just interrupt because Aaron, I, I, you know, I have said to Steve before, I'm going to share this with you, right? And, um, and he'll look at me like... <laughs> I'll drop a bomb and it's a vulnerability thing, right? Like I feel like I'm cutting over my, open my chest and handing him my heart on the table. And here I am, I'm going to share this with you. And here's what I, I need us to talk about. And he does that like blank look like, I don't know what to do with what you just gave me. And so he goes silent on me, you know, and then I'll, and I can tell he doesn't have what it takes right there to process that. So then I'll say to him, okay, I, I can tell you're not ready to talk about that when would be a good time to come back to this conversation? Like, okay. Do you need a week? Do you need three days? And, and I have to be honest, because I'm the better communicator in our marriage, um, he sometimes won't come back to it. So then I will at, not when we're in a heated discussion, not when, you know, when, when it's a good time, I will come and say to him, hey, you know, I brought that up about a week ago and we still haven't talked about it. Just, I'm just giving you a heads up because I know you forget easily but we need to have this conversation. I'll wait for you to decide when, you know? So there's a pursuing in it, but again, not in a way that is um, um, criticizing, right? It's like, no, we are, it's pursuing because I, I, we got to talk about this so that we can be more intimate. I want more yeah. from us, right? And I know him, I've been married long enough that I know he's not actually ignoring it because he wants to ignore it um, because he doesn't want to hear me. One, he doesn't like to go to bat with me. He doesn't like to be in conflict with me. He'll be in conflict with everyone else. He loves conflict, but he does not like it with me. <laughs> and, and then two, he just has a terrible memory. 
Like, you know, I have to write it down. Say, no, we actually talked about this five times. You just have forgotten, you know, so I have to remind him, hey, dude, you you want to be with me, you know? Um, I I think also the, the idea of not going after their character is also, yes, like, putting someone on defense, like criticizing who they are fundamentally is never going to create a safe space. But also just saying to my husband, I love you. We're, we're, we're good. I'm, I'm creating a space of security. Yeah. We are secure here, right? Your manhood, your inability, like this fear of your inability to meet my needs is not on, is not being um, in play here. <laughs> I'm not, you're not emasculated because you missed this, mm. you know? So good, Jackie. That's really really healthy strategies to make that where it's a productive conversation that moves problems out of your the way of your marriage right like it makes it where you can solve those problems and challenges without feeling overwhelmed by them I I love everything that you're saying it's great so what about faith community Erin and we'll land on that but um it's harder isn't it don't you think it's a little harder (laughs) to go into because now we're no longer talking one-on-one relationships now we got like a a group of people (laughs) Oh gosh, it feels so much harder for me personally, Jackie. Um, and part of that is with my husband, there is a safety and security. And at this point in our marriage, I know he values me and he loves me. And um, it, it, at different points, I think that it can be harder to feel that way in the church. And so I, I, I am working on these things, um, but I think if, if we want to hear all voices, if we want that diversity of voices at the table, like you were talking about earlier, Jackie, so all of these issues are being discussed and these things that are important, that I think are so important to Jesus, right? These caring for marginalized and vulnerable populations. Uh, I, I think there's a few things that we can do. One, when we're approaching those conversations, celebrate difference celebrate diversity. We have a beautiful analogy for it in scripture when we talk about the body and how everybody serves different roles and different functions. And so when you hear a voice that is different from your own, celebrate that that part of the body is being visible. And when you celebrate that, I think it gives people who would be more likely to self-silence confidence uh, and helps to rebuild some of that. I also think asking questions and listening matters. And approaching conversations in a way where you really want to learn and your, your attitude going into that conversation is wanting to learn from your brother or from your sister who might have these diverse perspectives. And I see some people who do this really well in conversation and it strikes me where somebody will say something, the point probably wasn't heard, but people just move on and keep going. And I, I've seen people who can stop that conversation and repeat what they said and uh, I think one of the things um, for people whose voice is more typically heard, who perhaps have more privilege, are are heard more loudly at the table. I think when you can do that for people whose voices could otherwise be easily overlooked, it goes a long way yes. uh, in making those productive conversations. So where you can use your voice to make sure other people heard a voice they may have otherwise not heard. And I so appreciate and value when I see people do that. Yeah, I think it's a really beautiful thing. And I want to say, I have seen my brothers in the Christian community do that. And I know there are women in the workplace that have shared with me that their bosses and people in the boardroom have done that for them. So kudos to you men out there who are doing that. And then I'm, I just want to say um, real quickly, and then I'm going to close on this, but 
I was speaking to a group of men um, at a church, senior pastor, elders, and they were trying to work through um, how do they incorporate women's voices, women at the leadership table, that kind of stuff. And so we had some women of influence at the table also, and I was leading this discussion, and one of the things one of the women said to the group was, well, we just don't want to be on your committees or be involved on your elder board because the truth is we won't be heard. So why waste our time? And I understand that. And actually, they're probably right. Statistically speaking, they probably aren't going to be heard, right? But when when the discussion was over and I was in the back room, if you will, with the women, I looked at them and said, well, you will never be heard if you're not present. Hmm. So yeah, know where you are at this time in history of your church moving forward slowly in increments. And, and, and your very presence causes disruption in their thinking about the bias of male and female and what it looks like to serve together. If no woman ever goes there because she knows she won't be heard, then we're never going to be seeing a shift. So basically, put your big girl panties on and pull up to the table and recognize that, you know, 80% of what you say won't be heard, but 20% brings a shift. Mm. Now, I also want to say to those of you, you've been beat, there are people that have been beaten up by that. And there is a point where the spirit says, and now you're done, you may leave. Um, But we need to be wise in the spirit of where he's, God is asking us to stay at the table, even if we're not always being heard 100%. Removing our physical body isn't going to make the, make it move forward, you know? So, Okay, I want to thank you, Erin. Erin has children at home. She's a professor. She's in the middle of a pandemic. So you know what her life is like. And here she was willing to take time to walk us through some of this. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Erin. Absolutely. It was a joy. And is there any way, like, let's say somebody wanted to ask you a question. It, could they ping you on Facebook? Are you on Instagram? Where, where can they find you? Is it ridiculously old school if I share an email address? Not at all. <laughs> um, me and social media, I am not the most adept at using it. But uh, my email address is C-R-O-C-K-E-T-E, so Crockett, but with only one T and an E at the end of it, at southwestern.edu. Awesome. And I'm going to post that on our uh, Facebook page, Jackie Always Unplugged, so that people can have it. And I would love to thank my listeners for listening. And also, if you guys out there have insight on how to create space for everyone's voice to be heard, like we could collaboratively learn well from one another. So throw out your ideas. If you like this podcast, would you send it to a friend, subscribe on your platform, and have a super day. Until next time.